Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 58, featuring my conversation with former WWF artist and illustrator, Tom Fleming. Before we get to the conversation between Tom and myself, some major news to report here on Shut Up and Wrestle. A couple of items that I'm so thrilled about. And of course, they're, they've been out there now for a few days. So if you happen to follow me on social media, I don't flatter myself that everyone listening to this does. But if you do, these are things that you already may have heard about, but I'm going to announce and celebrate them here. First of all, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, my book from last year, has won, it has been voted, the Wrestling Observer Award for Best Pro Wrestling Book of 2022. I truly and honestly did not see this coming. I've said to a lot of people that I thought this was Brian Gewurz's award to win with, with his memoir that he also put out last year. But there have been some incredible pro wrestling books that came out last year. There was also Keith Greenberg's book, Follow the Buzzards, about wrestling in the age of the COVID-19 pandemic. Just uh, I'm 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 honored that this has happened, and I'm grateful to the subscribers of the Observer who saw fit to vote for my book Blood and Fire as the pro wrestling book of 2022. This is this feels like the end of an incredible um, journey that started, gosh, more than three years ago now, three and a half years ago, and 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 I I didn't even dare to dream that it would lead to this. You know, I mean, this is. A, a very cool thing to me. I feel like, I mean, it's it's the highest honor that a pro wrestling book could win, in my opinion. And so this has just been a blast. Super thrilled. And it leads me into the announcement of my next book, which coincidentally kind of happened within a week of each other. I've been waiting to announce this because I was waiting to sign the contract from ECW Press. The contract has been signed, sealed, and delivered. And I can now safely announce that my next book, my next wrestling book, will be Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon. That's right. I am tackling the Gorilla Monsoon biography. As I promised, it would be a major figure in wrestling history who has never had a book written about them, much like The Sheik was. And now I've got another one. Gorilla Monsoon. I announced this a few days back. The response has been overwhelmingly positive. I'm excited about where this new adventure is going to take me. I believe, well, I mean, I've just started the process now, just getting the ball rolling. I am thinking, I don't have a firm publication date yet from ECW Press, but I know my manuscript is due to them in mid-2024. 
So I would estimate that the book would be coming out either in the very end of 2024 or possibly, possibly early 2025. But I will have more information as the weeks and months go on about this exciting new project, Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon, a true legend of the WWF. And I'm proud to be the one who is now going to tell his fascinating story. And speaking of the history of the WWF, that leads me to this week's guest. So Tom Fleming is somebody that I did not know at the time that I worked there. I was introduced to him online by Mike Foley, whom you may remember from a few weeks back as a guest on this show, talking about the creative services department of WWE and the WWF back in the day. And Tom was also a part of that. Tom really is responsible, as you will find in this conversation, for some of your favorite character designs of the 1990s, especially worked on some iconic posters and pieces of art, including the 1993 Survivor Series poster where, you know, the one where all the wrestlers are carving the turkey, right? Steiner Brothers, Undertaker, Lex Luger, right? That was Tom. So anyway, without further ado, we had a chance to talk about all of Tom's great and memorable work that for some of us here was a part of our childhood, a part of our fandom of the WWF in the 1990s and even the early 2000s. So let's get to it, and I'm going to take you to my conversation with Tom Fleming right now. Okay, so this week on Shut Up and Wrestle, I am honored to have with me somebody who worked for WWE like myself. Our paths did not cross during the time that we were there. However, we knew a lot of the same people. Um, he was a freelance artist and designer for WWF at the time, all through the 90s into the early 2000s. He did a ton of character designs and um, also pay-per-view posters and things that I'm sure once we get to talking about it, you're going to remember and recognize. In fact, I'm going to rattle off a few here because I'm looking at your portfolio um, that you designed or participated in the design of characters like the one, two, three kid crush the narcissist, Lex Luger, Adam bomb, Papa Shango, Max moon. Um, boy, looks like Bastion Booger, giant Gonzalez, Kurt angle, Mr. America. I'm talking about Tom Fleming. All right. Well, thanks for having me, man. And you can't forget about the biggest one of all razor Ramon. Oh, God, I did forget about that. Oh, my God. Okay. So, actually, let's – why don't we start with that? Because I left out probably – well, would you say that Razor Ramon or Kane was the most was the most famous character you designed? Man, that's a tough – I would have to say, well, the way I distinguish it is that Kane already existed. Hmm. Uh, Razor did not. So, as far as Razor goes, he was, um, you know – I was the original designer where Kane, I just redesigned. So I, I don't know. It's pretty close, but I, I would have to say Kane is probably um, in the big scheme of things a little bit bigger, but Razor, you know, when he got in the hall of fame, it was, he got in as Razor Ramon, not Scott Hall at the time. So I was, I was pretty proud of that. So with the Kane thing now, you you came in for a redesign, right? So when was that exactly? Do you remember? Okay, that was 2002. Um, 
I was recontacted. There was a there was a few years um, right at the end of the '90s where <clears throat> I moved down to North Carolina, and um, I kind of you know lost contact with uh, with WWE. And then Debbie uh, Bonanzio recontacted me in 2002, and she had like a like three projects for me. It was redesigning Kane's costume. It was uh, designing the sweatsuits for uh, Team Angle. Mm. And then there was <laughs> the 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 the, uh, the funniest of all was uh, that uh, Mr. America Hulk Hogan uh, gimmick. So, yeah, so th- those were the three uh, kind of, you know, uh, projects that I picked back up in the in the 2000s. So with Kane, I- I'm thinking if I'm thinking of the timeline, right, it's probably around the time that they had him take his mask off. Right. Uh, so I think and, you know, uh, don't quote me. I think they did the whole thing with his mask off. And then when they asked me to redesign the costume, uh, the character the comic book character spawn was really big by todd mcfarlane and um they one of the things that they requested was that the the new mask that they were going to make for him have like a spawn like feel so that was one of the parameters when i started working on that so that was oh okay yes so there was right there was that later mask and i think another aspect of it was that it showed a little more of his face didn't it yeah, yeah, it showed a little bit more of his face, and um, yeah, he had it was like the black, it was like a black costume uh, with red straps, and actually, my design was more like a, it was you know what I envisioned was all leather, like a whole leather kind of outfit and stuff, and they wound up going with a little bit of mesh. Um, they wound up going with uh, more spandex and um, they added red in the straps instead of keeping it all black. So it was, a, you know, uh, you know, there was a couple of different variations and, um, you know, it was super close to the design I did. Uh, there was just a little bit more, I think, red in it than my original design. So when you would do these and I love talking about these because, as you probably know, and I mentioned this to Mike Foley, who introduced us when I interviewed Mike on here, was they've been doing a lot of these documentaries now for A&E and things like that for the characters and the wrestlers and things. And they're showing these designs from creative services, which are, of course, the property of WWE now. And so I think it's gotten a lot of people interested in learning more about that process, because I'll tell you the truth, a lot of fans probably didn't even realize that. You know, they probably just thought the wrestlers just come up with everything or the wrestlers design everything. And I don't think they realized how much the company had an input in in, in designing what they looked like. No, that's absolutely correct. I've, I've gotten a lot of feedback from the fans and stuff that had no idea that um, there was even an art department. <laughs> you know, they you know, they realized that, you know, it's got to be produced somehow. But overall, they definitely in general, think that the wrestlers come up with their, you know, the whole gimmick and stuff and have everything created and made themselves. Now, did the wrestlers have much input at all? Like, did you ever interact with them or was it just totally like, oh, we'll do whatever you say kind of a thing? It was a a mix. Uh, They definitely had input depending on who it was. Um, There was some wrestlers where we were told exactly what the theme was and we just had to come up with the look then there was others that they just gave us a, a, a headshot 
and said, come up with different uh, themes and we'll kind of put them in front of Vince and he'll choose which, you know, which theme, which costume, which look he, he likes the most. So, you know, Papa Shango, for instance, was that was a that was a, uh, a pre um, determined uh, concept. They said, come up with a Haitian voodoo, like a voodoo doctor. And they even said specifically, if you want to look for uh, look at reference, look at the uh, movie Serpent and the Rain Serpent and the Rainbow. I knew it. <laughs> yeah, I knew so, it all these years. I knew it. Yep. So that, you know, I did a little research, watched the movie as, as instructed, and then came up with the Papa Shango look. Whereas Adam Baum was, Brian Clark was coming over and uh, they just said, come up with all different themes. And I believe the WWE has on their website uh, a lot of the different kind of alternate themes that I came up with that were rejected before they came up, uh, decided on Adam bomb. And there was like a commando. There was like a night, like a medieval night kind of thing with chain, like all kinds of like pretty much what I would sit down and I had a concept in my head. I would do that concept and then just start, you know, after that was done, just start doing all random kind of different themes and concepts and stuff. And, you know, sometimes they were just absolutely silly. Sometimes they were kind of cool, but usually the first uh, concept that I came up with was the one that was chosen. So did you ever, I mean, in terms of feedback, did you ever have a situation where a wrestler just, really hated what you did and didn't you know didn't was was kind of like i'm not wearing that i don't care what you designed i'm not going to put that on <laughs> um that's a great question that i've never been asked <laughs> uh man as far as i know maybe they were you know saving you know saving my feelings or something i don't know but um no actually usually whatever vince picked was usually uh pretty you know, pretty strong. And the wrestlers went, you know, really went along with it. The one instance where uh, there was a, a, a revision was with Scott Hall with Razor. And I have to say out of all the wrestlers, he was one of the most appreciative hmm. when he saw the designs. And um, during that day, I used to, you know, to avoid rush hour, I would go work out at the gym down, you know, um, on the second floor or whatever. And um, Scott came in one day and he was working out. He was in town and he, I guess, heard through the grapevine or whatever that I was the one that designed the costume. And he came over and he was super appreciative and was, you know, thank you, brother. This is it. He had one thing. He said, if you, you know, if you look at the original designs, I designed the costume with, uh, with, spandex pants long pants yes and he said brother i've been working on my legs way too hard man we got to turn those pants into <laughs> trunks and uh so i just took the the razor designs from the pants put them on knee pads and you know the rest is history you know with the razor trunks and that really is such an iconic design i mean like for people that were fans at the time it's something that still lives on today it's one of those classic 90s wrestler looks it's right up there with undertaker and bret hart i mean like 
with the razor blades and everything. One thing about it, though, and I don't know if they showed you this or made you aware of it, or I don't know if I have no idea if you were a wrestling fan at all, but some aspects of his look were kind of carried over from what he had been doing in WCW before that when he was the diamond stud, where it wasn't the costume, but more like he had the slick back hair and the toothpick, and he kind of was playing that slick character, but he hadn't really taken on the Scarface thing yet. Yeah, um, and he was one of the ones that uh, they knew what you know what the theme was. They they came to us and they said uh, it's going to be a Scarface type type theme. I believe if I'm if I'm correct that Tito Santana came up with the name. I heard that. And, yeah, and then um, and then I designed the and that one of my prouder uh, with the costumes. Usually I design the costumes, and then somebody the uh, in the art department designed the logos. That was one particular one that my logo and the costume was both picked where that was the first logo that I ever even attempted. And wow. um, yeah. And I was really proud of that because they put it on the when I designed it, I put it on the back of his vet on the vest also. And I think the logo probably has lived on even more than the costume, because I mean, that is just instantly recognizable. And that's the thing. You know, I talked to some other people who worked in creative services and things over the years. The era that you were there, that 90s era, it really was the heyday of, you know, and, and some pe- some fans loved it, some fans hated it, but it was the heyday of the very much designed and art-directed characters. Like, before that, again, I don't know if you were a fan, but like back in the 80s, most of the wrestlers that came in, most, they still had the same look that they had before they came in. There wasn't a whole lot of change. I know like Ted DiBiase became the million dollar man. That was maybe the first one. There weren't a whole lot. I mean, Hulk Hogan looked the same when he was in the AWA as to when he came to the WWF. And then of course, after the nineties era, when you get to into the attitude era and beyond, like Mike and other people have said, it was almost like they had a lot less need for you guys because they were kind of going back to just, having wrestlers that just look like wrestlers and not having overly, I don't want to say overly designed. I'm not knocking the work you did, but not having so let's say so intricately designed characters, you know, like Steve Austin is a guy in black trunks and black knee pads, even though I'm, I'm sure there still was some character design that went into that. But like you were really there in that sweet spot when creative services the department that's still there now, but when they had the most say in how the wrestlers actually looked on television. Yeah. And it was, and I mean, let's, you know, let's be honest. It was the age of the gimmicks and some of them we pushed, (laughs) some of them we pushed a little too far. Um, Some of them, you know, some of the gimmicks stuck. Undertaker was one of the gimmicks that is just iconic and lasted forever where a lot of the other ones uh, were, you know, a little hokey or a little bit over the top and and didn't last as long. Yeah, The Undertaker is an interesting one because, you know, like I've said to some other folks, the, um, you know, he was another one of those over the top gimmicks that among many at the time, he in fact, he didn't even really stand out at the time. There were so many of them, the, these very colorful heavily designed characters. And for what one reason or another, you know, partly the talent of Mark Calloway and all that, he survived, survived way beyond that era 
into an era when those type of characters didn't really exist anymore, but they kept trying to yeah. find a way to redesign him and repackage him and keep him fresh, which I think they did. But he really was a throwback to that era where like Mike makes the joke, like every wrestler needed to have another job, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, did yeah. You, were you now Undertaker was right before you got there though. So you, I don't think you were involved with that. Were you? So I was not involved with The Undertaker, and I believe Bill Thrash, who was the senior art director at the time, um, which I've I've lost contact with Bill. And um, if he if he ever hears any of these podcasts, man, I would love to reconnect because he was an awesome guy. Um, He designed The Undertaker's costume. Um, What I didn't realize for over 30 years was that I did the artwork for The Undertaker's uh, very first merchandise T-shirt. So I had no idea, you know, that was one of the first, you know, big, pro, you know, kind of big projects that I and to answer your question uh, earlier, I was not a wrestling fan before I started working there. So I kind of went in there completely oblivious to the history of the WWF. Um, which probably worked in my favor because things, you know, the concepts and things that I came up with were kind of fresh and not, um, I didn't have any kind of predetermined ideas what the wrestler should look like or anything like that. So it was, it wound up being fairly organic. Uh, but, you know, they gave me, you know, the an Undertaker project. I had no idea what it was, but it turns out just, you know, last, like during, during the COVID shutdown, I found when I started posting it online, I found out that it was the Undertaker's uh, very first merchandise t-shirt in 1991. I think I know the one you're talking about, but there've been so many. Yeah. It's, it's a circle, a black shirt with a circle and there's some tombstones and he's, um, he's, he's holding up his hand and it's kind of, it's that, you know, it's his original costume. Yes. Um, yeah. So it was, you know, that was kind of a cool, um, you know, cool little fact that some of the fans pointed out to me. And how often, if ever, did you get the experience of actually being at a live show and being able to really take it in and say, and, uh, you know, in, in living color, in reality, the designs that you created living and breathing and in the ring, like did, did that happen a lot? Yeah, all the time. Good, good. Uh, a matter of fact, <clears throat> when when we were uh, designing the costumes and they were approved, not only was I respons- responsible for uh, kind of following through on it, but there was there was um, parts of the costume that they actually had us create. So, for instance, I didn't just put Adam Bomb's costume on paper. When it got approved, the costume girls in Chicago would create the spandex. They had me. I was responsible to actually make his goggles. I had to. I actually created his gloves. Um, so you know, Papa Shango. You know, me and my buddy Jay Jarzoffer, we created the rain stick and uh, you know did all the elements of his top hat and came up with you know um, the necklace with those are all real bones that Jay. Um, actually collected through the years and they were fox bones, chicken bones, um, deer, like all kinds. And so they were authentic and we would have to come up with the accessories and, and the props a lot of the time. So when they had the TV tapings, we, we had to show up and make sure that everything with the costume 
uh, went smoothly, uh, you know, right down to the wire. And I have, I have stories being backstage, both positive and negative and, uh, and entertaining, uh, interacting with the wrestlers. So yeah, it's, I, I did interact with the wrestlers quite regularly. And so you were like, we were talking about this before, but the time frame here, you, I think you had said you were there in the office present as a freelancer in Stanford from 91 to 94. Right. And then later on in the nineties, you were working from home freelance. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so like getting to actually go to the shows like that and interacting with the talent, is that something that mainly was happening in the years that you were in the office or was it all throughout? Uh, Okay. Another good question because it was actually, I was there at the pretty much the peak of the kind of Hulk Hogan era. Sure. And so when I started in 91, that was right before they actually, we moved into Titan Towers. So we were working out of a uh, office building in Stanford, you know, downtown Stanford. And then the, you know, all the word got out that the building was almost finished, this and that. And then I was there when we transitioned into Titan Towers and the money was flowing. It was, you know, it was, you know, Vince uh, was expanding and, you know, worked, did the uh, WBF and it was super exciting. And during the TV tapings, it was, you know, there was all, you know, they had giant buffets beforehand and it was like a, a pretty big deal. And then as the years went by into, you know, probably kind of getting close to the mid nineties, that's when a lot of scandals started happening and this and that they started laying off a lot of people, the budget started getting cut and uh, there was a major decline in, uh, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, flow of money. So, you know, we were, you know, we had rented cars and hotel rooms and buffets and this and that with the TV tapings. And then it was like, you got to share a car, then you have to drive your own car, share hotel rooms. Then it was, you know, and it was like, it just started, you know, really dwindling. Um, and then, you know, the, you know, I guess right around when it started really getting dire is when they started laying off the freelancers. And I was one of the last ones to, you know, get, uh, get released. So, yeah. yeah. Like I know that, that mid nineties time is really kind of the lowest point for the company in terms of, you know, business really in the toilet. That was a little before I got there, but I remember even talking to people that I worked with that had been there that were saying, you know, from the office perspective, they were like counting, pencils literally like office supplies like rationing everything out and you know to to try to balance the budget in fact i don't remember what year it was but it's right around there 94 95 96 i think it might have been the only year or maybe the first year that they ever had a loss they they lost like several million dollars and which is funny to think now because they're like a multi-billion dollar company yeah and Vince is like worried about, you know, like five or six million dollars that he lost or something like that. But I mean, you know, at the time, like you said, it was dire. I remember, you know, I lived in New York and I used to go to the Mad Madison Square Garden shows all the time. And I remember a couple of shows where, you know, Madison Square Garden at that time would seat like 18, 19,000 people. 
and there'd be like three or 4,000 in there, which is so yeah. funny because that's kind of not too far off from what they draw today for a regular house show or whatever. But back then it was like end of the world numbers, you know? So I'm sure that was, you know, reflected in the, in the office as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there was, there was all kinds of um, red flags and, you know, it, I mean, it, it got to the point where the cafeteria shut down. Then they started renting the uh, the second floor out to a travel agency. And I remember that. Yes. Yeah, it was. It, it I heard about bad. it. Yeah, it got pretty bad. Um, and then uh, they laid off all the freelancers. And Adriana, who was my art director, um, she kept me on. And I can't thank her enough because I was a young kid when I started there. I mean, I was like 22, 23. And um and she kept me on as long as she possibly could. And I was the only freelancer that was still working in the art department at the time. And then she just said, you know, it's the, it's that time. We're going to keep you on. You'll work from home. But they're taking all the uh, keys away, you know, the electronic swipe keys right. off, away from all the freelancers. So, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty wild. One thing I loved about the office, because when you talk about the the electronic keys, it brings back a memory. I don't know if this was the case when you were there, probably so. But I remember when you had those keys, I mean, that building, I mean, yeah, they were typical office hours, but you had access to that building any time of day or night. There were no restrictions. I remember a couple of times, not often, because I had kids and I hated to run out when I didn't have to, but like going there in the middle of the night, just because of something that struck me oh my god i forgot blah 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 or just a, an idea that i didn't want to forget or something that i knew needed maybe it needed to get done the next day and i was trying to get a jump on it there were a couple of times i went down there in in the dead of night and there'd just be a security guard basically and and i could get in and do whatever i needed to do and and there was never any issue with it and other people did it too yeah sure i mean you know it was like um i remember having um uh, pay-per-view parties where, you know, the art department would get together at somebody's apartment in Stanford and we would all watch the pay-per-view events and, you know, see, yo, there's, you know, so-and-so's right. uh, logo and costume and stuff. And um, yeah, after, you know, there would be times where, you know, I forgot something or whatever and just, you know, run backs, you know, do the swipe and what, a, you know, I mean, it, it was a, it was exciting. It was a beautiful building and um, everything was brand new. It was, uh, it was pretty wild, but yep. Access, you know, complete access to everybody. And it's funny, you were talking about experiences dealing directly with talent at the shows and things. I've talked about some of my experiences on here. And, and of course, the ones you tend to remember and repeat the stories are usually the ones that are just outrageous or sometimes not the best experiences. But I have to say for myself, the large majority and yours, your mileage may vary, but the large majority was positive. I remember being really intimidated at first thinking pro wrestlers, oh my god, they're going to eat me alive. I mean, look at me. I'm like especially back then, I'm a 98 pound weakling in my 20s. And for the most part, yes, some memorable exceptions, but for the most part, they were they were a good bunch of people. They were generally professional and and from our point of view, we were working for things for the magazine where they weren't making any money from it. It was just 
getting publicity in the magazine. And so sometimes they would be a little less patient about that because, you know, if you're if you're sitting for a photo shoot, if it's for a T-shirt or you're doing something for merchandise or something that's going to put money in your pocket, you're going to be more enthusiastic. But other than that, I, I had mostly positive experiences. Uh, yeah, I, same here. I mean, I was really interactive with the wrestlers um, at times. And overall, I have it was just a fantastic experience. I, like I said, was not a fan. So at the, at, you know, before I worked there. So, um, but I did have my negative experiences and, um, some of them were pretty wild when you said, uh, when you just said that the wrestlers were, you know, you know, you were worried they were going to eat you up and stuff. (laughs) So I'll share a little story that I have told before. And, um, it was when I designed the atom bomb costume, uh, it, I was responsible to go backstage and the first TV taping and all that kind of stuff and make sure the costume went smoothly as goggles and gloves and make sure that everything was good. And I was backstage and out of nowhere, uh, Mr. Perfect, Kurt came storming over to me and he got in my face screaming. I'm, I'm talking right in my face, screaming, you know, and he was like, are you the guy that designed the bomb costume? He's like, he's like, do you realize you designed it with the same singlet cut as me? And he was furious that I did it with that kind of, you know, Olympic so, so kind of style. And he's the only guy that could wear a singlet. I mean, that's ridiculous. That I don't know what was going on there. If he was having a bad day or whatever, but he was so over the top furious. I thought my heart started racing because he was in my face. And he, at the time, he, he was, you know, he wasn't Scott Steiner, you know, and I was, and I, you know, I'm, I wasn't a small guy and I thought he was going to hit me. I thought he was, cause I started kind of nervously laughing and, um, and he got so pissed off. I thought he was going to hit me. And the thought went through my head. I was like, I think I'm about to throw down with Mr. Perfect. And, <laughs> and I was like, holy crap, this is, this is unbelievable. And then um, I just said, Hey, listen, Kurt, I was like, I just designed the costumes, man. Vince approves everything. If you got a problem, go over and talk to him. And um, and he had, I guess, some sort of, of a moment of of clarity or something. And he stormed away. And I saw him go over to Vince, and he started <laughs> doing the same thing, yelling at Vince. And I saw Vince do something, and he just punched one of the lockers or something and stormed away. And I was like, I don't know if it was just a bad day, but I was, my heart was racing. I was like, Oh my God, I, you know, I can't believe that, you know, and then I had to kind of um, get over that because Adam bomb was about to debut and I had to, you know, get back to the job. So, you know, there was, there was uh, that moment. And then there was the moment where I was working on Papa Shanga's Papa Shango's Cape putting the rubber snakes on it, making sure that was all good. And the ultimate warrior came walking through. And instead of walking around, he literally walked over the cape, got it caught on his foot and he kicked the cape to the side and um, just walked into the bathroom. And I was, I was really pissed off because, you know, I was nervous. Every, I wanted this, everything to go really well. And, um, you know, I'm the, the arrogance was kind of, you know, over the top. 
And, um, you know, of course, there's nothing I can do about it except, uh, you know, continue to work. So there was moments like that where, you know, the ego or whatever it may be, um, some of those guys are pretty temperamental. Um, and then there's others that were just downright wonderful people. And, um, you know, to this day, I'm, I'm friends with Brian Clark and, you know, we stay in touch. I just did him a new piece of uh, artwork uh, just a couple of years ago. So, um, yeah, it's a mix. It's a mix of experiences. And I have to say with Adam Baum, because at that time uh, I was really at the height of my wrestling fan mania before I came to work in the business. Um, and I, I was at WrestleMania 10 where he at the garden where he I think he had like a 30 second match with Earthquake and they were just pushing the heck out of him. I thought that was a fantastic look and a fantastic design. I remember thinking even at the time, and I kind of thought it was a shame that it was so short-lived. I don't know if that was partly on Brian or whatever went wrong, but he just didn't really last long there. And then he went on, you know, WCW and different characters and things like that. But that was one of the great what-ifs for me. I thought he had a great look. I thought he was great in the ring. I don't know what happened there. It just I wish it had been for longer. I'm with you. Um, when that guy came into the scene, I mean, he, so I think one of the reasons why I was hired was because I was, you know, a young kid out of college and my goal was to make it to Marvel comics. And I answered an ad in the New York times and had no idea it was the WWF. And went in there and interviewed. I thought it was an advertising agency that was doing the work for the WWF and realized pretty quickly once walking into the building that um, it was actually the WWF. And um, yeah, it was um, it was, uh, you know, one of those things where, um, you know, Brian. uh <laughs> He looked like a superhero. I think yeah. they hired me because of my comic book, my comic book background. And that was the one costume that I had the opportunity to create like a comic book hero. And that's so the atom bomb, the, nu the nuclear theme, um, the guy was built like a superhero. It was it was actually, uh, uh, you know, amazing. And I think that's one of the reasons why Kirk got so upset was because he was kind of at the end of his, you know, he was getting older and stuff. And then this young yeah. strapping dude comes in and kind of, you know, I guess in some regards, you know, was overshadowing him a little bit, but when he was, and he, and that costume was what I put on paper was the closest design that was came alive when they created the costume. So um, I had huge, you know, I, I thought it was, it was one of my favorite costumes of all of the ones that I did. And I had huge uh, hopes for that character and he did do really well for a while. And I'm with you. I don't, I don't know exactly what the reason is. Um, you know, sometimes it's just contractual or, so, you know, whatever things behind the scenes that we might not know. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I suppose I can ask Brian and uh, get his actual take on it. You know, he's got the real answers. Um, I'd love to know. It seemed like they just gave up on him after a while. Like he had a great, he was, he was piling up wins and they were pushing him. 
Yeah. And then it just stopped, you know, but um, there were, I mean, I'm wondering, thinking about things like Kurt getting upset or the warrior or whatever, if part of it also might've had to do with the fact that for a lot of these wrestlers in that era, you know, they had been wrestling a lot of the, some of those guys have been wrestling a long time, like, like yeah. Kurt Angle by like, let's say 94 had already been wrestling for like maybe 15 years. And so they, they kind of predated that era of, of you guys and the, and these kind of high concept designs and things. So I'm wondering if some of them just didn't have patience for it. If they were just like, Oh, this is ridiculous. What are they trying to put on me? Let me just have my match. I never had to worry about this before I worked here. Why do I have to worry about it now? I'm, I'm wondering if that ever came into play. I'm sure that it did. Uh, you know, I mean, let's face it when, when the gimmick started and, you know, Kurt, you know, Kurt was one of the guys that he didn't have a gimmick for the most part. He had a name and he had, you know, his look and it was pretty much straightforward, you know, wrestling singlet. He went out there and it was his personality that was really the, um, you know, the attraction. And then, you know, these other guys with these, you know, big gimmicks and all this attention coming in, it had to play a part in it. Yeah. It's like showgirls, you know, (laughs) (laughs) right? Yep. Yeah. Like, the, like that kind of thing. But yeah, you, you start to feel your time is passing and you could see the people coming up behind you that are going to replace you. I mean, God, I mean, I even had that experience in the in the publications department. Unfortunately, <laughs> it happens to the best of us. But actually, and I know this isn't a comic book podcast, but I, I happen to be also a big comic book fan and reader. And I have a new book coming out. Next, well, later this year on comic books and superheroes. So that aspect of it fascinates me as well, because I see that you've done a lot of work in that field. And I'm I'm assuming that your dream did come true in spades eventually. So, yeah, um, actually, it and this is the irony of life. So when I got the job at the WWF, uh, in my mind, it was a stepping stone to get to Marvel. It was, I was 22, 23 years old working. I was just happy to be making a living doing art. And the WWF was paying me for a 23 year old. I was getting paid pretty well. And, um, and eventually, uh, when I left the WWF, uh, a buddy of mine, Dave DeVries, uh, almost the, like that same week that I left had a gallery show in Manhattan and he said, come down. My art director from DC Comics is going to be there and I'll introduce you guys this and that. And one thing led to another. I showed him the portfolio and it was all wrestling stuff. And they were kind of it sounded to me like, don't call us. We'll call you. And about a week later, they gave me the uh, Superman trading card for the DC Master Series. And Amazing. yeah, so it, it was it was one of those things where I w- was, you know, I, I really didn't have a whole lot of confidence that I had the, um, you know, I had what it took to be a comic book artist, but yes, it went. And now I've done a lot of stuff for Marvel and DC through the years. Well, the question I have about that and forgive me for, if I'm asking ignorant questions that I should know more about, but, but um, being that you're a painter, I'm seeing that were was your main focus in comics covers and kind of art pieces as opposed to doing internal you know work on books or do it, would that be correct um that's very correct that, like an actually, alex ross kind of a thing okay so i in order to do the interior art there's a uh an element of speed 
that mm. is necessary if you're going to make any money and hit your deadlines. Uh, I was not the fastest. So I could, I mean, I would pull my all nighters and I took my deadline seriously and I definitely hit deadlines. Uh, but the interior stuff was very speed um, associated with getting it, the job done and not having to, um, you know, kind of labor over every detail and things like that. So I definitely was more of a, um, you know, cover artist, trading cards, covers. Uh, I did, vid you know, video games, things like that. But single image, single image art as opposed to uh, the interior uh, sequential stuff. Right. And I know, like, I, I always think of Alex Ross in, in that category because that's kind of what he's known for. Although there have been a couple of times where, for whatever reason, he actually got the luxury of time to be able to produce a whole book or a whole mini series. Like he did the Marvel series for Marvel and he did um, Justice for DC and other things like that. And, and it always turns out so gorgeous. But you look at it and you go, my God, how long did it take? Every single panel is like a is a painting, you know? So and it is. So let me take a second here to let people know how incredible the how prolific and the amount of work that Alex Ross does in the amount of time is virtually inhuman. And if you're a painter, you know what I mean. Uh, it is, I, I am absolutely flabbergasted how much work that guy puts out and, and, and keeping the quality at what it is. And for how long, for how long, I mean, for, for how it's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. The first time I became aware of him was Marvels, which would be like night, like 30 years ago, maybe at this yep. point. Yep. That was wild. And I really think that the stuff that he did has had a huge influence on the movies they're making and just a lot of the posters and designs. You can see it. Like I saw it very recently with black Adam with, with Dwayne Johnson, the rock where yep. the posters and things even some of the shots in the movie were like straight out of Alex Ross paintings, like directly out of that. Yep. He's, he's been, he's been a massive, massive influence on the industry. And um, I think as big as he is, I think as a creator, I think he's underrated. Um, I do to, too. To be honest, uh, people just don't understand what it takes. And when you see, and this is something I learned was that, you know, being, the fans are very judgmental, but the fans have absolutely no idea what the deadlines were. There's some times where, I mean, I've been called up by, uh, you know, by DC comics and my art director said, what are you doing between now? And it was on a Thursday and he said, what are you doing between now and Monday? And they had a green lantern cover for me that had to be done over the weekend. So it's, the fans don't really know what the behind the scenes are and the deadline, the, cr the crushes uh, that a lot of the artists face. Um, and Alex is it's it, the, the speed that that guy um, works at is, is absolutely unbelievable. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, well, two things, Alex Ross, I think doesn't get enough credit. And I think it's because of the fact that he's focused mainly on the covers and the art pieces. And so he doesn't get brought up enough when people talk about the greatest comic book artists of all time. But the other thing too, is like you said, and it's true. A lot of the, one of the big gripes that comic book readers have about modern day 
creators and artists is that they take so long. They're always like, well, Jack Kirby never needed that much time to get this done. And, and, you know, I don't, I think part of it is the work is more elaborate. Now the work is more detailed and, you know, it's like a double-edged sword. The fans demand, you know, a higher level of art all the time, realism and detail. And, you know, I think like people like, Todd McFarlane and those guys spoiled a lot of people in that area area of what to expect. Uh-huh. And if you want that, it's it takes a longer amount of time. Like, like I love Jack Kirby and people of that era, but what they're known for is working really, really fast. And they developed art styles that looked fantastic, but were also also didn't take huge amounts of time to do. Like they had a system and yep. that was a priority. And so when speed is no longer your top priority, that's what happens. You know, you have to either you want it or you don't want it. Exactly. I mean, um, you know, one of my heroes uh, growing up, one of the reasons why I started drawing was I was a huge I mean, my guy was the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk. And um, one of my heroes was actually Sal Basima. Oh, yes. Who drew the Hulk. But he also drew a character called Rom Space Knight. And I'm a, I'm, you know, one of the old school, I loved Rom and he used to draw Rom full books, Rom and Hulk, and probably do more every month. He was doing two full books plus, you know, whatever. And that, you know, everything is highly, highly stylized um, and, you know, more simplistic uh, in a way than his brother, John, but overall, his style just appealed to me and um and it i to to think of creating and producing two full comics a month i don't even know i don't even know you know how early that guy got up and went to sleep but it it makes no sense to me and i i think the busema brothers both worked on conan as well right i mean that's some of my favorite conan stuff savage sword i i was obsessed with as a kid because it yep. didn't have the comics code restrictions on it yeah. so there were all the girls and the blood and people getting their heads cut off and all that kind of stuff when you're 14 it's you know really really cool but but yep. uh, yeah i i love that stuff and actually to um to bring it back to, to wrestling if i can one thing because i could talk about comics all day too but yeah, i know <laughs> but, but related to that the art pieces and the and doing covers and things one of the things i noticed is that and maybe there were more of these but a specific time where you actually got your artwork for wwe not as a character design but your actual work the actual painting you did facing the public which would be the pay-per-view poster for um, Survivor Series 93, right? Yes. So that was the first. And wait, before you describe it, for people yeah. that, for, you know, all, all the events blur together for some people, but you remember the poster. I'm talking about the poster where it's Lex Luger and the Steiners and the Undertaker and, you know, their whole Survivor Series team, Tatanka, and there's a giant turkey on the table like it's Thanksgiving and they're about to dig in. I know I remember that really, really well. And I think they did one for the heels too, right? Didn't they? Uh, yep. Which I have a, I have a little story about that whole thing. Right. Um, so when I, that was my, that was my 
aspiration was when I started working there, I had no idea. I had no experience designing anything or, you know, I was, you know, I drew comic book type stuff. I had a portfolio of fan, mostly fantasy art. And um, I kind of got thrown into the designing part of it uh, and just kind of learned as I went along. But my whole, my goal was to paint. And it was, it took me, it took me two and a half, three years uh, to, I guess, build up the confidence in the art directors to let me uh, take a shot at some of the bigger projects. So my first project, and the reason why I had such high hopes and stuff to, you know, I thought I was going to get in there and start painting immediately because the first project I ever worked on for the WWF was uh, painting the realistic background for the Legion of Doom's uh, merchandise poster where they're standing in the alleyway. And I painted the background and then they photoshopped, uh, you know, Hawk and Animal on top of my painting. And that was the first job I ever did for them. So I thought that's what I was going to be doing there. And then all of a sudden I started doing all this other stuff with the designing. And, um, and I watched my, my buddy, um, and I, I didn't know him at the time, but he was kind of a hero, uh, a hero of mine. Joe Jesco was doing a lot of the uh, illustrations for the WWF. He did the Royal Rumble, uh, I think the 91, 92 uh, video covers and poster. He did the um, WrestleMania. Geez, it must have been six or seven with Hulk Hogan with the flag. Seven, and yeah. Yep. Yeah, he, did, he was doing all those paintings. And I'll be honest, while I'm sitting there designing... Uh, these costumes, not realizing even what a big impact these costumes are going to have, you know, in the big scheme of things. I was feeling really kind of crappy about, you know, myself of being like, why aren't they, why don't they have the confidence in me to do these paintings? Why are they hiring out, uh, you know, illustrators outside of the company? And um, I was waiting for that, you know, waiting for the day where they would come to me and that was finally um, the Survivor Series was the, the project that they finally came to me and they said, this is what we've got, blah, blah, blah. They described the scenario and they let me do my thing with no intention at the time of doing that second heels painting. Hmm. So <clears throat> when I finished the first painting, I brought it in, showed it to them. They were so thrilled with the uh, outcome of it that um and i had i was going on vacation uh in like it was like 36 hours i was going to, to europe on vacation they already showed vince and vince uh or or debbie i'm not sure who came up with the idea came up with that you know the, the idea of turning the page in the magazine and having the heels with the uh lex luger turkey and they, you know, they said, listen, this is the deal. We need the, uh, we need, you know, the heels painting. And I said, I'm leaving in, you know, I'm leaving in a day and a half for Europe. And they're like, well, we got this directly from Vince. And, you know, really, we're kind of in a, in a pickle here. We already committed to it. So I went home, put on a pot of coffee, pulled, did, did that painting in 24 hours. Uh, brought it back in. They absolutely loved it. Got on a plane and slept all the way to uh, to Europe. So it was brutal 
but one of the proudest moments of finishing that painting in one day. And I'm looking at it now. And of course, for people that remember, the team was Yokozuna, Ludwig Borga, and um, the Quebecers, Jacques and Pierre. Yeah. With yeah. the big with the big turkey. Yeah. You know, I, I remember the face one. I didn't, I don't think I had ever seen the heel one because was that run only in the magazine or was it run like only in the magazine? Okay. Only as far as I know, the the magazine is the only place where it appeared, where they you turn the page and there right. it was. Yep, yep. That's great. It is. But now the one little thing that also happened after I finished that painting, and they actually let me do it after I got back from vacation. Uh, that's when Tatanka got hurt. Which I mean, it's ironic that a Native American was celebrating Thanksgiving, but um, <laughs> he got hurt and was not able to compete in the uh, event. And they had me paint Undertaker in the exact same position for the video cover uh, that they photoshopped into the painting. I see that now, right? There's the two versions, one with Tatanka. He looks like he's about to scalp the turkey or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then and then the Undertaker taking his place. And I'm trying to see, that was the era. No, okay. I thought it was the era when the Undertaker was wearing that mask. Did you have anything to do with that? Remember when they had him wear that Phantom of the Opera mask for a while? <laughs> no, I had nothing to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> Good. So I can say that it stunk without hurting your feelings. But yeah, you know what? You can, I I have a pretty thick skin and I have no problem with the truth. Um, I live for the truth. So I would tell you, I mean, the, the designs are all great. I mean, I have a soft spot. Maybe it's because I was a kid for some of this and you know, the designs are all fantastic. Even things like Max Moon and which I understand <laughs> probably went through a ton of changes and Bastion Booger, who I guess in this design I'm looking at, looks like he originally had like some type of a helmet or a mask. Is that right? The, yep. The original concept for Bastion Booger was for him to be a gargoyle. A cargo. With, and with this... actually, and Mike told me that he came up with the name Bastion Booger, Mike Foley. Ah, did not know that. See, yeah. I, yeah um, you know, the, the artist never really came up with the names. It was always one right. of the art directors. Uh, I believe Tammy Hines came up with Adam Bomb. So there's, yeah, there's, um, I had no idea that Mike came up with Bastion Booger, but well, so yeah. he says, so he says. <laughs> yeah but that that gimmick cracked me up when he would uh sit on the his opponent's face blow his nose and then put the handkerchief over their face like you know the death thing um but yeah he was originally supposed to be a gargoyle and because of production time they uh they just couldn't have the mask produced in time so they just went with the uh the costume without the mask now some of the later stuff that you did in later years like team angle you said and and the Mr. America gear for Hulk Hogan, that was pretty late in the game. That would be about 2003 or so. So like at that point, were you pretty disconnected from the company and these were just kind of like one-off things or were you still, you know, I mean, like how did your relationship come to an end with the company? Uh, really, it was, I did those uh, when I, I don't remember how I reconnected with Debbie. Uh because there was a good period of time, you know, probably like 97 through or 98 through 2002, about four years that I had no contact and did not work for the WWE at all. And then I don't remember, I think it might've been part of like 
when Yahoo groups started up and, you know, the internet really started, um, you know, kind of like taking off where people would be able to connect. And I don't remember how we reconnected, but I got an email from Debbie asking me to do those three projects. And, um, after I did those three projects, I think shortly she left the company and she right. was pretty much the last contact I had there. That makes Everybody sense. Everybody else was new. Right. And I know there was like after Mike left, this would be like around that same time period. I do remember, I want to say around 03, 04, there was a huge kind of a bloodletting that happened in creative services. They got a new director. I think either either replaced Debbie or somebody under Debbie. It might have been who somebody who replaced Mike. Um, I, I won't mention the guy's name, but I mean, he came in and just cleaned house. Like wow. I, it was like a, like we went downstairs. It was so bad that because we had a lot of friends in creative services in the publications department. And when I started in 2000, we were all on the same floor. And then in it, later on, we moved down to the first floor and, and you guys were still on the second. And I remember when we heard about it, it was so bad. We came upstairs to see which of our friends were still left. I mean, it was that bad. It was like this guy came in and just gutted the place and just put in a bunch of his people. And a lot of them were people that had been there for many years. So that also might have contributed to why maybe they didn't reach out to you because everyone that knew you was gone by that point. You know, that had to be. And that's when. So this is the first time hearing of this for the most yes. part. It doesn't sound completely. Um, it doesn't sound completely uh, new. So maybe Mike uh, years ago kind of told me a little bit about it, but I had no idea that there was a, co you know, complete cleaning of house. And, yes. you know, I was disconnected by then. So and I moved on. I started working for Marvel in D.C. And the, you know, the, I didn't rely on the WW at the time. So it wasn't even like I was checking in for the most part. So yeah, this is all new to me. Um, had no idea. And that absolutely had to had to have a factor in why I never got called back. Yeah, it happens a lot in that place, as I'm sure you know, where they go through these housekeeping periods and just it's like a whole new era. They're 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 going through one of them now where like I know people that that I knew from when I worked there and that's a long time ago now. And they were there before me in some cases and they're gone recently and, you know, things like that. So there's a lot of turnover in that place. Not a lot of people get the retirement watch, you know, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And also like you mentioned in the, in the era when you were not doing as much work for them, like we said at the beginning, that was the era where they were relying less on, character designs i mean yep. so they probably needed less manpower at that time too yeah because um when i kept working for them freelance after i left it was with mike mike was my art director and he had me working on paintings of the actual the, uh, it was kind of like a uh, only almost kind of like a movie poster type feel of each wrestler and i was doing it for the merchandise catalog so i did like a painting of razor ramon and each one had a central figure of the like iconic uh shot of that wrestler and then there was a couple action uh shots in the backgrounds uh with some sort of like colorful background things like that and they were generic images that could be used for any kind of merchandise and it was in the merch you know i did diesel i did undertaker i did um 
Bam Bam, Razor, Brett, Sean, and they were, you know, producing these uh, for, you know, any all purpose. So I'm assuming if my, you know, my dealings with the company are my memories are accurate that I can't imagine you own any of these original pieces. They were probably all kind of like the proprietary domain of the company or whatever. Or did you actually get to keep anything? I did. Yeah. Oh, I nice. Actually, nice. Yeah. I still have, um, I still have a lot of the original art from, uh, from back in the day. And they allowed that or that were they not aware? Or? Yeah. I mean, it was, um, you know, there, there, there was nothing, um, you know, there was nothing in the contracts and um, there was nothing set. So, and actually Bill Thrash, one of the, the art direct senior art directors um, gave me actual permission to keep some of them. Yeah. And um, when I left, so yeah, I actually got official permission to uh, own a bunch of the artwork. That That's a rare thing. And that's something to cherish. Cause I know like, for example, I wrote, you know, I I did freelance for them. I was full-time salary for them, but also in those days you were allowed to double dip. So I would do like freelance for licensees and things. And I would do, uh, I wrote a book for them while I was there, which was another Simon Schuster was a licensee and no royalties, nothing can't, you know, that they pay you a one-time thing. And then that's it. And the other thing I remember too, is like to show you about how sometimes they could, they're very um, territorial, my kids design helped to design a t-shirt once when they were little. They wow. were doing, yeah. I had a I had a friend of mine in, in the department who asked me to help out. He thought it would be a cute idea. They were trying to do a I've never never told this story before, like a kid's t-shirt that said my first WrestleMania, and they were gonna sell it on site at WrestleMania or whatever. And so they had me take home. They created like a black and white design of the logo, and they said, bring this home to your kids. And have them color it in however they want, just with crayons. You know, they're little kids. Yeah. And that'll and that'll be the design, like whatever they do, because it'll look cute. And I said, all right, great. And the kids did it. Uh, I brought the designs in. They loved it. They scanned everything in. I think they tweaked little things here and there. And I was like, okay, can I can I bring those home now? I'd like to like hang them on the fridge. And they were like, no, you can't have that. That's property of WWE. I was like, are you kidding me? That's like a kid's crayon scribbling. But you know, that's how they could be sometimes. Absolutely, yeah. I think they got more strict and stuff um, in the later years uh, than when I was there. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's your the- fault, Tom, because you took all those paintings home. That's what <laughs> you ruined it. You ruined it for everybody. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, like I, you know, and I always wonder if, um, if they're, you know, I heard that, you know, they're building a, uh, or, you know, building a collection for the hall of fame and things like that. So, um, you know, some of the, I mean, the survivor series pieces for sure are historic. Um, so, you know, it's, um, it, it, you know, it is what it is, but, um, I sat on it. I, it didn't even seem like wrestling fans were interested, uh, for so many years until fairly recently. Well, you know, what happens as I'm sure you've discovered much to your delight is that a lot of those kids, they grow up and they become adults and they become nostalgic and they also 
in some cases make a lot of money that they didn't have when they were little kids yeah. and they like to to buy things that take them back to that time so and man i mean like i could i could go on forever i'm like i said i'm looking at your portfolio online and there's so much so much amazing work that you did there and and actually when i post this interview i'm going to put links to your website and all that awesome. stuff but even just for here before we finish up how can people find you? You know, if people want to check out your work and and maybe buy some of your prints or what have you, like, what's the best way to find you? Um, I mean, I do a, a lot of most of my announcing I do on the Facebook pages. Um, I have Tom Fleming, which is my personal page. And before I knew that you can start a professional page, you know, I pretty much filled up my five thousand, you know, whatever the allowance is for the, uh, you know, for friends. And now I have the art of Tom Fleming which is, you know, please every, anyone and everyone, please, you know, join. And I announce everything on Facebook and Instagram, um, Instagram, it's Tom Fleming artwork or Tom Fleming art at Tom Fleming art. And my website is uh, tomflemingartwork.com. And um, yeah, most, I mean, really, I've, I kind of transitioned from the website to the Facebook and Instagram pages as doing um, the uh, big announcements and, uh, most of my marketing and, uh, promotion and all that kind of stuff, because the interaction between those pages is, you know, way more, uh, you know, way more effective than the website. So really that's, yeah, that's the way, um, I do some Twitter. Yep. All right. Yeah. We, we all do. We try to stay away, but we just keep coming back. But uh, <laughs> but thank you, Tom. This has been great, and and I'm so glad that you made the time to. Like I said, these are these are the stories that people love to hear, and the memories that that don't get out there enough. People that you know, a lot of the work you guys did back in the day went under the radar, as far as fans are concerned, and that's why I love to bring stories like yours to light. So thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. And, uh, you know, I, it's just amazing to me how much interest there actually is in it, because, you know, I, I went 30 years without ever talking about it at all. And until COVID hit and I had to find ways to um, increase revenue because conventions shut down, I started sharing stuff online. And it was kind of like searching for Sugar Man, if you're familiar with that movie. Yeah, where yeah. He, People knew the artwork and had no idea that I did it. And all of a sudden I was getting fan mail from all over um, podcast requests from all over the world. And it became this like, oh, my God, the stepping stone has become the most significant thing that I've done in pop culture. So that's what I was talking about, the irony. That, that right, right. I mean, that is an incredible thing. And I would be one of those people that you mentioned who didn't make the connection. Like I said, we didn't really cross paths there. And you were, you know, out of the building by the time I was there. And the last pieces that you did, I was there for, but I mean, you were from home. So, you know, the first I knew of you is a recent conversation I had with Mike Foley. So with Mike, yeah. I'm I'm so glad that he made the connection. This has been really great. Thank you so much, Tom. Yeah, I appreciate it, Brian, man. It's It's been fun. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Tom Fleming. And I hope that that conversation brought back some fond memories 
or maybe not so fond memories of the 90s WWF for you, depending on what your take of that era was and of that company was. Either way, I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Thank you, Tom, for being a part of the show. And I'm also looking forward to next week's show, which harkens back to some of the work I did on Blood and Fire, because my guest is going to be A.T. Huck, who was an acquaintance and colleague of the Sheik. He worked as a referee. He actually refereed the Sheik and Bobo Brazil's last match in 1991. And he also was a promoter and has been and is a promoter in the Michigan area of independent pro wrestling. A.T. Huck coming to Shut Up and Wrestle next week and other great guests in the weeks to come well i'm glad that you asked we've got people like phil schneider of the way of the blade and also of the ringer.com we have mike clark who worked in the toronto office of jack tunney he is coming to the show michael cavaccini the author of the upcoming book on the first 20 years of impact wrestling tna he will be here. And I'm also excited to say that Mary Freeze, the daughter of Pampero Furpo, who you may have heard a couple of years back on the Mothership, the 605 Super Podcast, Mary Freeze will now be a guest coming up on Shut Up and Wrestle in the weeks to come. So subscribe to the show. Follow the show. You can find us in so many different places. Our website is suawpod.com. You can also find us at Spotify. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addict, wherever you find the great podcast that you love to listen to, you will find Shut Up and Wrestle, including you'll also find the other podcast that I do, the PWI Podcast, which I co-host with Al Castle. Look for that as well, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And while you're doing that, please do go ahead and join the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. We are swift approaching a 1,000 members. Let's make that happen. If you want the latest updates on the guests who have been here on the show, if you want to find out about Irresistible Force, my new Gorilla Monsoon book that's that I'm working on now, go and join Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. If you're interested in picking up the last book I did, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, is still available in print digital and audio copies on amazon.com at barnes and noble and many other fine retailers so go out and get it or order it from the convenience of your own home however you want to do it just do it another thing i want you to do is listen to the wrestling news every morning give us 10 to 15 minutes of your time as arcadian vanguard brings to you your one-stop shop in audio form thanks to the dulcet tones of mike sempervivi for all of the day's professional wrestling news, thewrestlingnews.com. Check it out, subscribe, listen. You will not regret it. If you are interested in picking up the magazines that I write for, there's one you may have heard of called Pro Wrestling Illustrated. You can get it on pwi-online.com. Inside the Ropes magazine, which is a fine UK publication that I contribute to, you can order digital and print copies there at insidetheropesmagazine.com. So please do go there and do that. And if you're looking for me on social media, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can find my author webpage on Facebook, Brian Solomon Writer. And on any one of those social media platforms, you will also find the links to my newly updated author website. 
on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that he who will not reason is a bigot, he who cannot is a fool, and he who dares not is a slave. So long, wrestling fans. 